0: this is guns and butter
1: There's with gun over there so when it became clear to him that in fact they didn't want to do this to forestall vote fraud but wanted the program in order to commit vote fraud, Mrs. Yang said to him, and this is in his sworn affidavit, and it was actually bold-faced in his sworn affidavit. He quotes her as saying, You don't understand. In order to get the contract, we have to hide the manipulation in the source code. This program is needed to control the vote in South Florida, unquote.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Dennis Liu. Dennis Liu is Associate Professor of Sociology at Cal Poly Pomona. His most recent article, No Paper Trail Left Behind, The Theft of the 2004 Presidential Election, was first presented at the Pacific Sociological Association in April 2005. His background includes the study of public opinion polling, the shaping of public policy, and the interrelationship between the two. That interrelationship is impacted by the presence or absence of influential social movements and by the role of opinion makers, such as the media. Dr. Liu, welcome.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. Glad to be here.
0: In your article, No Paper Trail Left Behind the theft of the 2004 presidential election, you begin with a list of 16 improbable, impossible occurrences that indicate massive voter fraud. You also note that this is just a partial list. What are some of the more glaring examples of out-and-out voter fraud? For instance, you begin by saying that Bush received a 3.5 million vote surplus nationally. Did this seem unusual to you?
1: Well, yes. It seems peculiar on its face because, as everybody knows, we had a huge turnout in 2004, the largest ever, and a highly energized and motivated electorate. From the very beginning, when the polls opened in the morning across the country, there were long lines at lots of polling places, and these lines continued up through the time that the polls closed, so... The evidence on the ground was that people were coming out to vote in droves. And historically, when that happens, the candidate who is the more leftish or liberal candidate is going to benefit from that. Because the people who don't tend to vote demographically, they're disproportionately minorities, disproportionately poor, and so on. And those strata in society do not tend to vote for the more conservative candidate. So on its face, it would seem that there was no way that Bush, one, could have won in that situation, and two, on top of that, end up with a 3.5 million vote surplus. It just doesn't make sense.
0: There is a low voter turnout in elections generally. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that the voter turnout in the 2004 presidential election was a bigger turnout than normally turns out in a presidential election? Because I always hear these terrible statistics about how most people who are eligible to vote don't vote.
1: Yes. The United States is distinguished by, in general, low turnout in elections. On the one hand, yes, this was the biggest turnout. In terms of numbers of people voting, this was the biggest turnout ever for a presidential election in the United States. We don't have as high a turnout overall as many other nations in the world do. And that's a function of a number of things, most notably the fact that we have a winner-take-all format, so that if you win a state by one vote, for example, you get all of their electoral college votes People recognize that, in fact, it doesn't matter all that much which way they vote because we don't have proportional representation in other places. In the legislative branch of the government, for example, if your party garners, say, 5% of the vote, you're going to find some of your people in the legislative body. But in our case, it's only the two major parties that really dominate the scene. But the other thing that should be added to this is that a great number of people millions and millions of people who normally wouldn't participate, did participate this time, because they really wanted to get rid of Bush. And they felt that by working for his defeat and going to the polls, that they would be able to accomplish that. And then, lo and behold, they find it didn't matter.
0: So you're saying that, historically, this presidential election in 2004 did have a huge turnout,
1: We did have a huge turnout. I mean, in terms of proportion to our eligible voters, it's still relatively small compared to some countries have 80 percent turnout and so forth. We tend to run around 40, 50 percent of eligible voters. So a lot of people don't participate, even in this last election.
0: Dr. Liu, I'd like to go through some of the instances that indicate voter fraud that you enumerate in your article. You talk about the vote in Florida Mm -hmm. and the percentages of registered Republican votes Mm -hmm. in that state.
1: Well, let's start with 2000, the contest between Gore and Bush. And Florida, as we all know, was the one that decided, well, actually, it was the Supreme Court that decided it. But it came down to the wire in Florida, and it was awfully close in Florida. In 2000, Bush got 85% of registered Floridian Republican votes, which seems reasonable, on the face of it that he would get 85 percent but in 2004 in 47 out of the 67 Florida counties he received more than 100 percent of the registered Republican votes in 15 of these counties he received 200 percent of registered Republicans and in four counties he received a whopping 300 percent of registered Republicans now The only way that this could happen is if there was a large crossover vote by people who were not registered Republicans, that is, Democrats and independents. If they had, in huge numbers, flooded over to vote for Bush this time, that could explain this, these numbers, which on the face of it are jaw-dropping. So I took a look at what those numbers were, to see if that explanation would hold. And what you find is that, again, going back to 2000 between Gore and Bush, among independents, Gore squeaked by 47 to 46 percent in 2000 against Bush. Kerry polled independents by 57 to 41 percent. In other words, he increased his share of the independent vote compared to Gore by 15 points against Bush. And among registered Democrats, if we compare 2000 to 2004, Bush's share of registered Democrats was essentially identical. In 2000, he got 13% of registered Democrat votes. And in 2004, he got 14%. So what you were left with is a situation of you cannot explain these kind of numbers of 100, 200, and 300% uh, votes in these counties for Bush with crossover votes. So the only conclusion you can reach here is that either these people are coming from out of thin air or you have fraud.
0: Now, when you say 300 percent of registered Republican voters, what you mean by that then is, let's say, if there's 10,000 people registered as a Republican, then that means he would have gotten 30,000 votes. That is three times as many votes as the Republicans that were registered
1: there. That's correct. That's correct. Now, if I may go back to the point that we started out with that relates to this, about the big turnout for this election, for Bush to have garnered a 3.5 million vote surplus nationally, he would have to have had a large turnout. You know, Karl Rove's strategy was get the Republican base out, right? mobilize the conservative evangelical vote and the social conservative vote, and that way we can win. Well, when you look at first-time voters and lapsed voters in the election of 2004, lapsed voters being those people who did not vote in 2000 but had voted before. So if we look at new voters and lapsed voters, we find that rather than this going to Bush, it went to Kerry by a nine-point margin, 54 to 45 percent. Kerry pulls the first-time voters and lapsed voters. And if we look at undecideds in the election, we also find that, although we can't measure undecideds directly because they don't ask people outside the voting booths after they voted, were you undecided, but what we can do is, based on history, and based on polls that were taken prior to the election conclude that the undecideds went to the challenger carry in this case by a very big margin historically the challenger will take the undecided vote by margins of 2 to 1 or 4 to 1 pollsters call this the challenger rule there are various reasons for this But probably, if somebody is saying late in the election season that they're unsure still, they are probably going to end up voting for the challenger because of the inherent advantages of incumbency. The AP Ipsos, that's I-P-S-O-S, conducted polls of voters from April through early August of 2004, and they found that among undecideds, listen to this, 74% thought the country was going in the wrong direction and only 19% saying they thought the direction of the country was right. So it's very easy to see that undecideds went to carry in a big way as well. So to sum that up, we've got a 17% increase compared to 2,000 of people voting in 2004. So that includes the new voters and the lapsed voters and possibly some undecideds, right? And we find that in each one of those categories, Kerry wins by a big margin. As the Red Queen would say in Through the Looking Glass, this is an impossible thing, but I will believe it.
0: So then all of the lapsed voters, the crossover voters, the undecideds, they all tend to go for the challenger. But in this case, in order to account for Bush's win, they would have pretty much all had to have gone for Bush.
1: That's correct, and they didn't. They voted for Kerry by at least a nine-point margin among first-time voters and lapsed voters, and undecideds went for Kerry by at least probably, you know, this is a little bit speculative here, but based on past patterns, at least by a, a margin of four to one. And in this case, probably because Bush was so disliked by so many people, probably even a bigger margin.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Dennis Liu, Today's show: No paper trail left behind the theft of the 2004 presidential election. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You say in your article that Bush got more votes than registered voters. That participation rates in many Democratic strongholds in Ohio and Florida
1: mm-hmm.
0: fell to as low as eight mm-hmm. percent. Voting for the Democrat.
1: Right. Yes, let me elaborate on that. In Perry County in Ohio, which is a pro Bush area, Secretary of State Ken Blackwell certified two precincts with turnouts of 124.4% and 124% of registered voters. In other words, an impossible figure, but he certified it nonetheless. If you compare pro Kerry Cleveland, there were, let me mention a few, certified turnouts in prokary Cleveland precincts, 7.10%, 13.15%, 19.6%, 21.01%, 21.8%, 24.72%, 28.83%, 28.97%, and in seven other wards with reported turnouts of under 50%. So remember, Ohio was one of the states that was going to decide the election, and both the Democrats and the Republicans had plunged their forces into Ohio and Florida in particular to get out the vote. And in heavily Democratic Cleveland, apparently people lined up in long lines from early on until the very end, waiting for hours in many cases, apparently only then, to go into the booth and pretend to vote.
0: You do point out in your article that it was known way ahead of time that it was going to be Ohio and Florida that were going to determine the election.
1: Right. Everybody knew this. Everybody knew. So there was no secret. Everybody was watching those two states. And then Pennsylvania was also, those two plus Pennsylvania that was going to decide the election, but it was going to come down to probably Ohio or Florida. Now, in Florida... Let me cite one thing from Florida here. In Liberty City, we have 88% of the people in Liberty City are registered Democrat and only 8% registered Republicans. But in 2004, Bush took this Liberty City by a landslide, getting 1,927 votes to Kerry's 1,070. Now, you might say, okay, well... And some commentators have done this. They have said, well, in Florida, you have the so-called Dixiecrat vote. You have people who register Democrat, but they vote Republican. Now, as I pointed out earlier, one of the reasons this does not explain what happened is because Bush did not win any more crossover votes in 2004 than he did in 2000. And as we all remember, 2000 was a cliffhanger. And secondly, these votes far in excess of Republican-registered voters Occurred primarily in non rural areas. For instance, in Baker County, Florida, out of a little under 13,000 registered voters, of whom approximately 70% were Democrats and 24% Republicans, Bush received 7,738 votes while Kerry only received 2,180. So I know there's a lot of numbers here, and they're a little hard to follow, but basically, let me just repeat that. Seventy percent of these people were Democrats, but Kerry loses. He gets a little over 2,000 votes, and Bush gets nearly 8,000 votes. This is totally implausible. Now, if it were the case that this was legitimate, that people were crossing over, then you have to explain two things. One, why didn't more people cross over statewide in florida because there was no change in that and in fact he lost among the independents in a big way bush did and secondly this would have to be a general pattern throughout the state and it's something that should happen throughout the nation you should see a lot of registered democrats crossing over to vote for a republican in this case but you don't find this what you see is a patchwork pattern where in some wards or precincts you find unbelievable crossover voting for Bush. And in other places, the patterns match the registered voter rolls. In other words, if it was a heavily Democratic precinct, then you see heavy support for Kerry and vice versa.
0: So these irregular voting patterns occurred only in certain counties.
1: That's right, only in certain places, and this was evident particularly in Florida and Ohio, and it wasn't matched in magnitude anywhere else in the country.
0: You begin your article with a quote from Through the Looking Glass. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was younger, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. And you point out and you list then at least 16 impossible things that people have to believe to believe that George W. Bush won the 2004 presidential election.
1: Exactly. And you have to believe all of these things. You know, even if you don't like some, for instance, like some people don't particularly care for pollsters. They don't think that polls prior to the election are adequate and so on. Well, you don't even have to accept all of these reasons. Any single one of these reasons is enough to indicate that, at a minimum, the election is questionable and needs to be investigated.
0: You also point out that Bush won re-election despite approval ratings below 50 percent, and this for the first time in history.
1: That's right. That's right. His approval rating on the eve of the election was 48%. Now, this is a measure that they've been taking for a very long time, pollsters, that is. And it is a marker of what is to come in the actual election. It's a tipping point. If you fall below 50%, you invariably lose. Now, Bush has, in commentary on this, has been cited as only one of two people to do this, Harry Truman being the other one. And so I looked into this question of Harry Truman's. In 1948, he was running far behind his challenger, Thomas Dewey, and he ends up pulling off a shocking, upset win, right? That very f- famous picture of him holding up a headline from a newspaper saying, Dewey wins, right? The thing about this, though, is that Dewey was so far ahead of Truman in the polls that the pollsters didn't bother to sample the electorate two months before the elections. So they just stopped polling. And so the late surge of support for Truman wasn't detected by polls. By comparison, Bush's support was clearly eroding on the eve of the election.
0: I was going to point out that you've said here that the Harris poll, their last minute polling, mm-hmm. indicated a carry victory.
1: Yes, yes. And Harris had called 2,000 right on the mark. They were spot on. They had said that this race is too close to call in 2000 and it'll depend on turnout. So they did call the election for Kerry. Clearly, Kerry had the momentum on the very eve of the election. In other words, people were moving away from Bush sharply and towards Kerry in the last week before the election. So not only was his approval rating below 50% on the eve of the election, but the momentum was going against him. So for him to go from 48% on the eve of the election to 51% in the official tallies on election day with momentum running against him strains credulity. It just doesn't make sense, and it has no historical precedent.
0: Exactly. You mentioned something called the challenger rule, that an incumbent's final results won't be better than his final polling.
1: That's correct. That's right. That's another rule that he violated. I mean, he violated so many rules. The thing about when you look closely at this election is that what you find is that there are a plethora of reasons to suspect or to conclude, really, that this election was fraudulent. There was just no shortage of evidence. I mean, I don't even bother to talk about many of the things. There's no room, really, to talk about all of the evidence of people having trouble voting and so on. People putting Kerry in the voting machine and then seeing to their shock Bush turn up <laughs> on the screen. Disenfranchisement of black voters in Florida, but not Latino voters who were felons because blacks are more likely to vote for Democrats. And Latinos are.
0: What about the absentee vote in Ohio?
1: Okay. Well, in Ohio, we had 147,000-plus absentee and provisional ballots that were counted by a court-supervised hand count. And in that 147,400 absentee and provisional ballots, Kerry received 54.46% of that vote. Now, Bush officially won Ohio by a 3% margin, 51 to 48%. And yet Kerry received a very large portion of the absentee and provisional ballots. Now, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that the official total for the state of Ohio was wrong. It's possible that the absentee and provisional ballot voters were bent towards Kerry. But there's two things about this. One is that it makes this look very odd, and secondly, it doesn't match historical accounts. The absentee and provisional balances don't tend, in general, to be that far off from the official totals. And then the other thing we can add to this is that the exit polls, which we haven't really talked, we haven't talked about that yet, right?
0: No, no, I was just, okay, just going to work my way <laughs> uh, through some of the okay. fraud, and then we could go into that in a big way. Okay,
1: well, let me just preview that briefly here on this particular point. The exit polls were showing Ohio going to carry by four points. So if you look at the exit polls relative to this absentee and provisional ballot, it tends to support that suspicious number that we see in the official total for Ohio.
0: So of the absentee ballots in Ohio, Kerry won almost 55% of the absentee ballots. That's correct. So that doesn't match up with what we're being told the popular vote was. That's
1: right. It's the reverse of the popular vote, according to the official tally.
0: Could you talk a bit about uh, Florida computer programmer Clinton Curtis, a lifelong registered Republican, because he did say Mm -hmm. that he was hired by an outfit called Yang Enterprises, Inc. What about that instance of indicating voter fraud?
1: Yes. Let me preview this by relating a little personal anecdote. A colleague and friend of mine and I were talking about the election shortly after the election, and I was saying, you know, this just doesn't compute. All of this does not compute. It doesn't make sense. You know, we went through all the reasons, and he kept, you know, objecting to what I was saying, and I kept saying, well, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And finally he said, you know what? I'm not going to believe it until you find a programmer who admits that he was involved in it. (laughs) So after I discovered this, I sent this to him. Anyway, yeah, Clinton Curtis, as you mentioned, was a lifelong registered Republican, and he was working for gang enterprises in Florida. Now, in 2000, he was approached by Tom Feeney, who was Jeb Bush's 1994 running mate for Florida lieutenant governor. He's a GOP state legislator, and shortly after this approach to Clinton Curtis, Tom Feeney became Speaker of the House of Florida's Legislature. He's also general counsel and lobbyist for Yang Enterprises. So he and Curtis's employer, who is Lee Wan Yang, approached him in 2000 asking him if he could produce a software computer program that would undetectably alter vote totals. Now, Curtis thought initially that he was being asked to do this in order to find a way to forestall vote fraud. So he worked on it, he created the program, and he handed it over to Mrs. Yang and said something about, I mean, you can actually go and look up his affidavit, we can give you that website. So when it became clear to him that, in fact, they didn't want to do this to forestall vote fraud, but wanted the program in order to commit vote fraud, Mrs. Yang said to him, and this is in his sworn affidavit, and it was actually bold-faced in his sworn affidavit. He quotes her as saying, You don't understand. In order to get the contract, we have to hide the manipulation in the source code. This program is needed to control the vote in South Florida. Unquote. I just love that. Needed to control the vote in South Florida. So what you have here is a situation where A programmer has come forward at risk to himself, in fact, because Curtis has nothing to gain by making a statement like this, swearing on an affidavit. In fact, he's at personal risk to come forward in this way. Whereas the people who he asserts were involved in asking him to create this program had everything to gain, and in particular Tom Feeney, who was, again, Jeb Bush's running mate for lieutenant governor of Florida in 1994. So you have motive, as the police would say, and you have means. And then if you look at the incredible, implausible kinds of vote totals in Florida, it makes you wonder.
0: Now, what about Diebold CEO Walden O'Dell's declaration in 2003 to the GOP fundraisers?
1: Yes, this was in August 14, 2003. He wrote a letter to the GOP fundraisers in which he said, I am, quote, committed to helping Ohio to deliver its electoral votes to the president next year, unquote. I am committed to helping Ohio to deliver its electoral votes to the president next year. Now, Diebold is not just any company. Diebold is one of the three major suppliers of electronic voting machines in Ohio and nationally. So, in fact, Diebold plus Election Systems and Software, ES&S, and Sequoia Systems. These three companies provide over 80% of the voting machines that are used in this country. Not only was Warren Walden O'Dell, CEO of Dybul, declaring his partisanship in this letter to the GOP, but all three of these software companies that provide most of the machines that we vote on are all hardwired into the GOP. None of these are Democrats. They're all Republicans. And if you do some background investigation on these people and their connections, you find some very, very odd things.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Dennis Liu. Today's show No Paper Trail Left Behind The Theft of the 2004 Presidential Election. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What about CNN uh, reporting at 9 p.m. on election evening that Kerry was leading by three points in the national exit polls? And actually, this brings us to the whole question of exit polling, which Mm -hmm. is a huge question.
1: Yes. In fact, the material that we've covered so far is in itself compelling, but the slam dunk is the exit polling. Okay, so let's talk about that. CNN at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time election evening reports Kerry leading by three points in national exit polls. This is based on well over 13,000 respondents. Several hours later at 1.36 a.m., CNN reports that now based on a few hundred more votes, 13,531, Bush is now leading by two points. So we have a five-point swing with... A tiny increase in the number of respondents. This is, in short, mathematically impossible.
0: Now, CNN calling the election for Kerry was based on exit polling. That's right. Now it says CNN reported that their exit polls, now based on a few hundred more respondents, were showing Bush leading by two points, a five-point swing. Well, now, what do you think is going on here? Is it CNN skewing the numbers, or is it the exit pollsters themselves?
1: I don't know exactly. I'm going to have to speculate a little bit here. The national election pool, NEP, which is Edison and Mitofsky, Warren Mitofsky, invented exit polling, were contracted by the media to conduct the exit polls in 2004. And so they were feeding the information to CNN and others at this time. There was a reported computer breakdown that evening prior to this 1.36 a.m. report. And so when they came back up after this reported computer breakdown, the numbers that had been showing Kerry leading by a wide margin were suddenly changed. Now notice, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the polls in Ohio had closed. So for Kerry to be leading by three points, and then suddenly, based on only a few hundred more respondents out of 13,000, Bush is now leading by two points. A five-point swing is just impossible. So, yes, the NEP was feeding these exit polls data to the various media organizations, and they have said that what they were doing was they were adjusting their numbers. The official tally wasn't known yet at 1.36 a.m. So probably what happened, Bonnie, is that between 9 p.m. and 1.36 a.m., the official tally started to change dramatically, where you were seeing numbers that were supporting a carry win. All of a sudden, this gets reversed. And so some kind of an adjustment was made in the exit polls so that they would conform to what was coming in on the tally.
0: Because my recollection of Election Eve were Mm -hmm. that the exit polls were showing a carry win.
1: That's correct. Until 1.36 a.m.
0: You know, you also point out that in every single instance where exit polls were wrong, Mm -hmm. the discrepancy favored Bush.
1: That's right. Every single time you see something that should not happen. Statistical probability and polling tells us that if you find an error, that the error should be scattered both directions. But in this case, with the exit polls' discrepancy to the official tallies, you find them only wrong in ways that favor Bush. The official tally in every single instance. So as I say in my article, half a century of polling and centuries of mathematics must be wrong. For this to be true.
0: Now, exit polls are considered a very accurate indication of how the election is going to go. Isn't that true?
1: Exit polls are the gold standard of the validity of the official vote count internationally.
0: And, and why is that?
1: Standard. Well, they're so precise. The reason they're so precise is because you don't have any guesswork When you do exit polls, let me quote to you from someone who otherwise wouldn't be on our side, so to speak, on this. Dick Morris, who is a GOP bolster and strategist. This is what he said right after the election of 2004. Quote, exit polls are almost never wrong. They eliminate the two major potential fallacies in survey research by correctly separating actual voters from those who pretend they will cast ballots but never do and by substituting actual observation for guesswork in judging the relative turnout of different parts of the state. To screw up one exit poll is unheard of. To miss six of them is incredible. It boggles the imagination how pollsters could be that incompetent and invites speculation that more than honest error was at play here, So this is Dick Morris saying this, who is a Republican. So to elaborate a little bit on what he was saying here as to why exit polls are so precise, when they poll people before the election, they have to make some estimations about the likelihood that someone is going to vote. They have to make some guesses about how someone is going to vote, who is undecided, for example. They have to make some estimates about which groups are going to show up in what proportion and which gender is going to be at what percentage of the vote and so on. Exit pollsters, on the other hand, have all of the advantages and none of the disadvantages. They get to poll people as they have left the polling booth. So even old people can still remember who they just voted for because they've only walked a few yards. So you can take all the guesswork out. And that is why exit polls are extraordinarily accurate. In fact, in Germany, for example, they use the exit polls to determine the winner, and then they count the paper ballots afterward to confirm whether or not the exit polls were accurate. So not only are they the gold standard internationally for fraud, for instance, in the same month as our presidential elections, Ukraine had their presidential elections. And we had exit pollsters doing polls there, in part paid for by the Bush administration. And as you remember, it made headline news that there was fraud being committed in Ukraine based explicitly on the evidence of exit polls. So while we had exit polls that were widely, way beyond the margin of error, which for exit polls is very small, way beyond the margin of error, we had exit polls showing that our outcome in our presidential elections was wrong, didn't make sense. In the Ukraine, we had the same thing. But what happened in the Ukraine? They had a re-vote. What did we have? We had an inauguration.
0: Exactly. And, of course, those exit polls for most of the evening were showing a carry victory.
1: Yes. And that was consistent with everything else that we saw happening, all of the pollsters' surveys of the electorate right up until the eve of the election. It was consistent with what we saw on the ground in terms of the kind of turnout that we saw people from the very early hours until late into the time when the polls would close. It was consistent with the kind of mood among the electorate about people's attitude towards Bush. And yet we get this stunning turnaround in the evening of election night showing a big victory for Bush after Kerry was rolling to victory prior to that. I want to add something about the exit polls here. A statistician at the University of Pennsylvania, his name is Dr. Stephen Freeman, took a look at these stats right after the election, and he wrote a paper called The Unexplained Exit Poll Discrepancy. And he concluded, he looked at Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida, which were the decisive states, and he said that the odds that all three of these were as far off from the exit polls as they were was $250 to one. $250 to one. I think the odds of winning the lottery are better than that, aren't they?
0: I would think so. (laughs) There was a whole group of statisticians who took a look at this.
1: Yes, there was. Now, in January of 2005, the NEP, the National Election Pool, who had conducted the exit polls, produced a 77-page report trying to explain and account for why the exit polls were as far off as they were. Let me just summarize what they said first. The NEP's report concluded, first of all, that there was some kind of systematic bias, and secondly, that it could be explained by so-called chatty Kerry voters. That is to say that their exit pollsters were approached more often by Kerry voters than by Bush voters, and so therefore their sample was biased towards Kerry and explained, therefore, the discrepancy. They also noted that, or they said that, uh, you know, a number of their exit pollsters were young and experienced and, therefore, more likely to approach carry voters somehow. And, finally, that they couldn't get close enough to the polling booths uh, to interview people. They were held further back. Well, so three, three reasons. Now, as for the last one first, that they couldn't get too close, well, that's always been the case. That's nothing new. As for the young and inexperienced pollsters, well, that explanation doesn't explain why the exit polls were only wrong in certain places and not in other places. They were only really wrong in the decisive states. And thirdly, as to their most important explanation, the chatty carry voters, well, these nine statisticians who are with U.S. count votes looked at the report very carefully, and they noticed that the data that was provided by the NEP indicated, in fact, the opposite, that Bush voters were slightly more likely to approach their exit pollsters than Kerry voters, which would make the discrepancy between the official tally and the exit polls even more exceptional than it was. So it should be noted that their explanation, the NEP's explanation for the discrepancy in the exit polls, is simply a hypothesis. They have no evidence to support their conclusion that it was chatty carry voters. And in fact, the evidence they do provide points to the opposite. And then finally, one can say that they never, ever in their report considered the possibility that exit polls were right and the official tally was wrong. They never even consider it.
0: Exactly. They're trying to explain away why their exit polling was wrong. That's right. And the whole point is, is that their exit polling was, in all probability, right.
1: It was. Exit polls are right. Exit polls are more reliable than anything. So the fact that they dismissed out of hand and never even considered the possibility that exit polls were right and the official tally was wrong is very telling. It should be noted that exit polls are used for two purposes. One is to project a winner, and secondly, to detect fraud. And of these two reasons, the second one is the more important one, detecting fraud. But they don't even consider it. And news accounts about their report have incorrectly stated that the NEP concluded that fraud didn't get committed. They don't conclude it. They simply assume it.
0: It's interesting that the national election pool would then go along with officialdom and not challenge it.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. You know, one of my areas of research is polling, and another major area of my research is media. So I have looked at polls of various kinds for a very long time and over a long period. And one of the interesting things you find here is that pollsters, because, you know, obviously they want to continue to stay in business and they want to continue to get paid, and if they were to come out and call out fraud, they would get a lot of heat for this, and they probably wouldn't get the contract next time. So, John Zogby, for example, who is a very well-known pollster, was calling the election for Kerry. I was watching him, for example, the eve of November 1st, the day before the election, he was on the daily show on Comedy Central with John Stewart, and he was saying, you know, I think that Kerry's going to be very happy with what I found. But Afterward, Zogby has kind of backed off, but the record is that he and Harris and Gallup and so on were showing the trend was for Kerry and that Kerry was going to take this election. As we noted a, a little while ago, every discrepancy between exit polls and official tallies favored Bush, and that the margin for error was exceeded by these official tallies relative to the exit polls.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Dennis Liu. Today's show, No Paper Trail Left Behind, The Theft of the 2004 Presidential Election. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What's most interesting about this is that the official pollsters, the exit pollsters, the polling companies, etc., They've all gone along with what we could refer to as the official fiction or the official win for Bush. Mm -hmm. This is not being challenged, not in the major media. Maybe we should talk about the corporate media and how they go right along with the official story. First of all, could you talk a little bit about the Fairness Doctrine? What is that?
1: The Fairness Doctrine was applied to... Broadcasters. It requires, if you have an FCC license, to provide balanced views on controversial issues so that if you had somebody on, say, like Rush Limbaugh, then you would also have to have somebody who was the other side of the spectrum from Rush Limbaugh to talk about something that Rush had just said. What happened was that in 1987, under the Reagan administration, the Fairness Doctrine was eliminated after being lobbied for by well-heeled conservative groups who wanted to pave the way for creating a right-wing media empire where they would not be bound by the Fairness Doctrine to provide any alternative views to their viewpoints. So that's why you see the rise since then of networks like Fox News and various other radio talk show hosts like Rush Limbaugh and his imitators.
0: So the corporate media did not challenge the vote in any real way, did
1: they? No, in fact, you had a few people writing articles here and there questioning these results because this is really theft in the open, really in the open. But for the most part, what happened in corporate media is that they not only didn't cover all of the information that tried to detail in my article, but they dismissed and ridiculed anyone who dared to suggest that there was something fishy about these results. They actively tried to censor the information about the fraud, some of which we've been talking about here. The New York Times and the Washington Post, for example, The phrase that was commonly used among major corporate media was spreadsheet-wielding conspiracy theorists. This, by the way, was at the same time that these same media outlets were saying that there's fraud in the Ukraine, and exit polls are definitive evidence of that. So... On November 11, 2004, for example, in a Washington Post article, it describes people raising the question of fraud as, quote, mortally wounded party loyalists and spreadsheet-wielding conspiracy theorists. They don't even bother to talk about exit polls in the case of the New York Times and in the case of the Washington Post. They say incorrectly that the exit poll's discrepancy was not based on statistics and that the exit polls are not publicly distributed. Well, both of those statements were wrong. They were publicly distributed, and the analysis was done by statisticians. They were one of the first to come forward and say, these results are not believable. So when Keith Oberman came forward and did do a couple stories about this, for his doing so, he got attacked for being a, quote, voice of paranoia and spreading, quote, idiotic conspiracy theories.
0: You also go on to say that significant, inexplicable discrepancies between exit polls and official tallies only started showing up in the U.S. in 2000 and only in Florida. That's correct. And then you go back to that 2000 election and you say analyses conducted by the National Opinion Research Center in Florida after the U.S. Supreme Court aborted the vote recount, and this would be in 2000, Gore emerged the winner over Bush no matter what criteria for counting votes, was applied.
1: Exactly. Right. No matter what criteria. It doesn't matter. He won. So you had one vote majority in the Supreme Court that really decided, as everyone remembers, and they said, no, don't count any more votes.
0: (laughs) So this is very alarming. We've got Gore as a winner in 2000. Mm -hmm. We have Kerry as a winner in 2004. And here we have George W. Bush as president. What do you think is going on with the Democrats? Why are they behaving as if nothing is up?
1: Well, in response to your question about the Democrats, there's a number of things we can say here. But the overall thing I want to say about the Democrats is that, because a lot of people talk about the Democrats as being spineless, and I think that there's some basis for them to say that, certainly. But I think the more important thing to say about the Democrats is that they are loyal. They are very, very loyal. So let me talk about some particulars here first off. If we look at elections prior to 2004, what we find is a kind of a pattern here that says something not only about the electronic voting but about the Democrats. In Georgia, we have two races in 2002 between Senator Max Cleland, the Democrat, who was running for re-election against the Republican Representative Saxby Chambliss. And going into the election, the day before the election, he had a five-point lead over Chambliss. Chambliss, in the official count, ends up winning by 53 to 46%. In other words, a day before the election, he's trailing by five points. On the day of the election, he wins by seven points. What you have here is an unbelievable 12-point turnaround over the course of one day. So we now have Senator Chambliss since then. In the governor's race in Georgia, Republican Sonny Perdue was running against an upset Democratic sitting governor, Democrat Roy Barnes. In the Mason-Dixon poll shortly before the election, Barnes was leading 48 to 39 percent. In other words, he had a nine-point lead over Perdue with a margin of error for this poll of plus or minus 4 points. In the final tally, he loses 52 to 45%. When you do the simple arithmetic here, what you find is a jaw-dropping 16-point reversal. So what you have in both of these races, what they had in common was that they were on computerized voting machines which produced no paper trail. In Minnesota, after Democratic Senator Paul Wellstone's plane crash death, ex-Vice President Walter Mondale takes his place and is leading the Republican challenger Norm Coleman in the days before the election by 47 to 39 percent, in other words, an eight-point lead. Coleman ends up beating Mondale 50 to 47 percent. This is an 11-point turnaround. The Minnesota race was also conducted on no paper trail, electronic machines. Now, the Democrats have said nothing to speak of about these unbelievable races. And yet, on the face of it, if you look at it, it's obviously there's something going on here. But I think it says something about the Democrats, that they have meekly accepted these results without calling out the fraud that obviously is going on. Now, why have they done that? Well, I think in part, it's hard for them to imagine that fraud on this level is occurring. But the other part, which may be even more important, is that they haven't raised more of a fuss about these elections, even though they have the most to gain, because a full-scale uncovering of the fraud would have the potential of unleashing popular forces that the Democrats find just as threatening as the GOP does.
0: Why do you describe the main aspect of the Democrats as being their loyalty?
1: In their highest and best expression, Democrats are FDR new dealers. The material basis for that stance, however, has been disappearing systematically for the last 25 years. Why? Because of globalization. Both the Democrats and the GOP are in agreement on globalization, Clinton, you'll remember, pushed through NAFTA. The reason the Republican Party has been overall ascendant in recent times is because they represent the most aggressive, most cutting edge policies vis a vis the demands and desires of transnational corporations who are the dominant entities in globalization. Globalization means the dismantling of the New Deal welfare state. It means privatization, deregulation, downsizing, deindustrialization, and speed-ups. It means corporate power unfettered and much greater insecurity for most of us. The GOP has been moving radically to the right over the last 25 years, and the Democrats have moved decidedly to the right as well. As just one example of this, Kerry Edwards' platform in 2004 was remarkably like that of George Walker Bush, W's dad, when he was president. This sharp move to the right has happened because the politics of globalization demand it. The Democrats can't lead a real fight to take all of this on and reverse it because they share a fundamental agreement with the GOP, about the rightness of capitalism and the rightness of globalization. This brings us to the matter of the popular forces that I referred to in my article. I say in my article that the main reason the Democrats have been unwilling to challenge the blatant fraud occurring in these elections is because to do so might unleash popular forces that the Democrats find as threatening as the GOP does. If the people who rule us and the institutions they run that rule us are revealed to be utterly corrupt, arbitrary, capricious, and illegitimate, and I'd say, I'd add to this in the wake of Katrina, utterly incompetent, then the people who are now willing to go along with it and those who aren't willing to go along with it but recognize that they can't do anything about it absent a general atmosphere of unrest and protest will together begin to act outside the bounds of politics as usual. That frightens the Democrats and the GOP both, as well it should. So I think what you have to conclude here is that if you look at the major events of the last several decades in particular, the anti-war movement, for example, against the war in Vietnam, it wasn't the Eugene McCarthy campaign of 1968 And it wasn't the George McGovern campaign of 1972 that ended the war in Vietnam. It was the Vietnamese people's resistance, and it was the anti-war movement that ended that war. If we look at civil rights, civil rights wasn't granted from on high by JFK and LBJ. It wasn't because they had suddenly woken up to the problems of racial discrimination and segregation and lynchings and so on. It was the civil rights movement and the black power movement that rocked this country to its foundations. We need to realize that, one, the Democrats are not the way forward, and that, in fact, we have accomplished a great deal through mass movements. We carried out the largest demonstrations in history internationally before this war in Iraq was waged. We denied them UN sanction. We helped to create that condition, and we helped to create the condition where Turkey denied U.S. requests to use their area as a staging place for this war. And these are major accomplishments. We weren't able to stop the war, but we were able to create more favorable conditions against the war.
0: Well, Dr. Liu, thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Dennis Liu, Associate Professor of Sociology at Cal Poly Pomona. Today's show, No Paper Trail Left Behind, The Theft of the 2004 Presidential Election. The focus of Dr. Liu's research has been polling, media, crime, and public policy. His article on election fraud is published as a chapter in the new Censored 2006 book and is also posted at www.projectcensored.org. Dennis Liu can be contacted by email at DDLu at csupomona.edu. That's ddluo at csupomona.edu. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at (laughs) www.gunsandbutter.net. Yo, these are some serious times that we're living in, G, and our new world order is about to begin, you know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine, you dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, of your own cypher and be on the lookout for those spirit snipers trying to steal your life you know what i'm saying look what just yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me you got me